Hey there, this is our lecture on 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, also called the Johannine Epistles. So the, we're coming to the end of the New Testament, and we're actually returning kind of back to something familiar from uh, earlier on in the class. So uh, if you'll remember, the Gospel of John earlier on um, was written by John, uh, one of Jesus's close disciples, often called the beloved disciple. And because of this, uh, he's often depicted with his head on Jesus's breast. This says John in Greek, Ioannes. Um, because in the Last Supper, he is said to have been, so when, on the night Jesus was betrayed and they were having their last meal together, he is said to have leaned back onto Jesus's breast because he was, and, and, talk, and talked to him uh, because he was uh, sitting next to him, basically. But John is also referred to as the beloved disciple in the Gospel of John and is often um, seen being one of Jesus's inner circle with uh, Peter and James. So Peter, James, and John are Jesus's closest disciples. As we've talked about many times, Jesus had many disciples which just basically means a follower or a learner, someone who is learning from, uh, from a, someone who's in authority teaching them. And uh, so there were Greek philosophers that had disciples. There were lots of people in the ancient world that had disciples, rabbis and so on and so forth, just moral teachers, that kind of thing. But um, Jesus had this you know, large group of disciples that could have been up to you know, thousands of people that would come and hear him teaching the uh, then he had kind of a smaller group of 70 or 72 depending on what, you, uh, what the way you're reading one of the texts uh, that he would he was sent out with the message of the kingdom and they were um, commissioned by him to proclaim the message of the kingdom and they came back and uh, but the, those weren't the 12 disciples that everyone hears about uh, often yeah the 12 disciples which were Jesus were even closer um, followers of Jesus and then you have these the three and those those three are the very uh, closest disciples of jesus and john was one of them so about the johannine epistles um so johannine means you know john-ish basically it's from john john's epistles um they include first second and third john and what uh, the perspective that i have and the perspective that you'll read about in your uh, textbook is that they were written by John the beloved disciple but there is also this idea that there was another guy another famous Christian at that time named John the Elder so you see that in 2nd John and 3rd John so some people will say will argue that 2nd John and 3rd John were written by someone who's different than the beloved disciple John and were written by someone named John the Elder. So we don't really know for sure, um, but I do think that some of the language between the three letters along with the Gospel of John do really, um, they go together really well. I think the themes really work together very well. So I don't have any reason to suspect that they wouldn't be the same person the main difference is that in the Gospel of John, he refers to himself as the beloved disciple. 
and in second and third John he refers to himself as the elder which the elder could be um, just because he's getting older so now he's referring to himself as the elder maybe there's another John hanging around in the area and so he's distinguishing himself from that John by referring to himself as the elder there's a lot of reasons why that could be the case but um, or just another thing if you ever see like sometimes um, in scholarly circles the way that they write about a gospel they call it G John G Mark G Matt G Luke um, just means gospel of John it's kind of a shorthand way of doing it and apparently I wanted to do it in a shorthand way for this um, but most likely written the latter half of the first century late 60s to 90s um, it it seems like it may have been written around the same time as the Gospel of John because it has similar themes in it uh, but we really can't I don't think nail down the date too securely so and you know me I prefer not to guess when it comes to those kind of things but uh, what did John really care about in the epistles? I'd say that John wrote to encourage the church to avoid sin and false doctrine or false teaching as they awaited Christ's return. So we're going to walk through First uh, John, actually. Second and Third John are just like uh, uh, not even a full chapter. But we're going to walk through First John, hit a couple of high points within it, and you'll see kind of where I'm getting this idea from um, so one of the one of the things that we need to talk about when we're talking about the epistles of John is something called Gnosticism Gnosticism with a G um, the Gnostics were people who felt that physical things physicality was bad that this earth was is is bad and that spiritual things like so uh, angels and spirits and that kind of stuff were good and so the goal of life was to escape this physical world and to uh, attain some kind of enlightenment that would allow you to enter into this spiritual world and shed your body and um, basically live without the, the trappings of this of your your degrading body and so uh, this is a problem for Christianity because the Christian faith has historically held to this idea of a bodily resurrection and so the idea of a bodily resurrection means that yes I will die and perhaps be separated from my body um, for a time, if I'm a follower of Jesus, I'll be perhaps uh, the idea would be in heaven with Jesus. Uh, but then eventually my spirit, the immaterial part of myself will be reunited with my body in a bodily resurrection like Jesus experienced um, just before the final judgment. And it would be at that time that I would be judged either to go into the new heavens and new earth and live eternally with Jesus or be received God's wrath for my sin and spend an eternity in uh, punishment for my rebellion against God so those are the two the two paths that happen but anyway but either way both of them have a bodily resurrection within them and Christianity has has 
always affirmed that physicality is a very good thing that it, it's actually a it's something that's inherent to being human that you have a physical body you can't be a full human without a physical body if you're if you're just a spirit or something like that then you're not a human and so this whole idea of this goes back to something we talked about before with first and second peter with whether it, whether it's referring to destruction of the earth or a restoration a purification with fire of the earth it we're returning to that kind of idea whether um where it's important to recognize that god is so committed i think to redeeming his creation that um that he's not going to just um you know eradicate everything and then we're all just going to live as spirits floating around in clouds or something like that but really the goal of of god in creation is a new heaven a new earth restored heaven restored earth um, set to their ideal state and us living physically in resurrected redeemed bodies free from the presence of sin worshiping and serving jesus forever that's god's ideal for the um for the creation and so we're going to really get to that when we get to uh, the revelation of john but um, this gnostic idea is then very problematic so where it what it eventually developed into was um this teaching that jesus actually didn't have a physical body and that he was a um he was kind of like a, a spirit being maybe and so you see some emphasis in first john on reminding uh the church that uh, that this is written to um, or even the churches possibly this is written to uh, that the that jesus did have indeed a physical body and so physicality isn't isn't a bad thing now gnosticism the way it worked is you would uh, join kind of a group of people and there would be this secret knowledge the word uh, gnosis in greek means knowledge so gnosticism is kind of like a knowledge-centered religion and uh, they would uh, impart some kind of secret word or something like that that would enable you to um, one day pass from this physical existence into a spiritual one after you died and um, so there's just lots of problems with that because it leads to a devaluation of your of your own physical body meaning maybe you wouldn't take care of yourself or maybe you would say well i want to get out of this physical body because i am uh, because it's bad and so you might put yourself in harm's way or or other things you might do things with your body uh, because you say oh it's just a shell this body is just my shell it's not really um legit like legit me and uh, i mean if you have read you know well you have we've read the new testament you've seen in first corinthians for example paul is very concerned about what you do with your body and um that your body is uh, he calls it a temple of the holy spirit i don't i don't think that that works in the way that people often think of it but it um is something that's very important so you need to to take care of it and don't just a lot of times where where this conversation goes is some people say well my body doesn't matter so i can just have sex with whoever i want or something like that that's um that's actually arguments that people make sometimes so anyway 
there's a connection obviously between the way you live your life and how you perceive physical existence and so John is trying to argue against this particular idea and where you see that um, is right here in chapter 1 in 1st John that which was from the beginning which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes which we looked upon and have touched with our hands um, concerning the word of life so so he's emphasizing here he's saying uh, John is saying this is this is concerning something that I've seen myself and that I've touched so I've seen with my own eyes and I've touched with my own hands concerning the word of life the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was uh, with the Father and was made manifest to us. And if you go down and gone down, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And so just something to know about with respect to John's letters is that he's responding to something called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism emphasized this um, that physical things were bad, spiritual things were good. One thing I, I kind of want to hit on is that I think we actually kind of talk like this in churches a lot today, and I have in the past until I realized the importance that the New Testament placed on bodily resurrection and, um, and a physical existence. And that's that, um, uh, like we, we talk about like even in a funeral or something like that, like the goal of life is to die and go to heaven, right? It's to die and go to heaven and spend eternity in heaven as a disembodied spirit. And that is definitely not the teaching of the New Testament. The I've already talked to you about the idea of resurrection. But um, if you think about, think through like some of the worship songs or some of the sermons that you've heard or maybe some of the funerals you've been to, often it sounds like the goal is to go to heaven. And that is what we call in theology terms, it's actually an intermediate state. It's intermediate because it's not the final state. The final state is embodied existence. And so the reason I'm hammering this home is I think it's something that's really significant and uh, impacts the way you live your life is that you'll always have, um, except for a, a small period of time, possibly when you're in heaven, if you're a follower of Jesus, um, that uh, you'll always have. A physical existence and so I think that that really impacts the way that we live our lives and the way that we um, interact with each other so um, enough on that but I do want you to think about that think about like where do you hear about hear these kind of Gnostic ideas in churches where the whole goal is for the body to be separated with the spirit or to get away from this from this physical existence and just live in a spiritual realm and that their only real thing is the spiritual that's not what the New Testament teaches um, first John gives us a really uh, easy uh, route to figure out why he's writing and he, but he says this this uh, several times throughout but I feel like this is kind of the central one he says my little children I am writing to you these things um, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin but if anyone does sin we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ the righteous and so I think the main thing here is he's encouraging them to avoid the sin um, that the, the the ethical problems that come with this um, this issue associated with Gnosticism, with a denial of the importance of physical reality. 
as you read through, I, I hope you'll notice some of the um, some of the touch points that First John has with the Gospel of John. So, for example, chapter 2, verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And so you, there's a whole conversation, remember, in the Gospel of John about uh, how followers of Jesus are in the world but not of the world. The world has rejected Jesus. Jesus came into the world. He's the light of the world. This whole this uh, idea, the Greek word cosmos, uh, we maybe say cosmos, is the word for world. And that comes up as a big theme in the Gospel of John and in 1 John as well. Um, I just love chapter 3, verse, uh, verse 1, where he says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Um, I think that for me, one of the really crazy things is that really struck me this past um, Christmas time is I try to kind of do a little bit of reflection regarding uh, the birth of Jesus and the incarnation and that kind of stuff as uh, as we you know approach Christmas. And one of the things that really struck me was in um, the Gospel of John chapter 1 which says something very similar to what I just read. Um, so if you have your, uh, so I, you do have your Bible, so go ahead and flip over there, um, where he says here in uh, chapter 1, uh, the truth, so this is chapter 1, verse 9, the true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But all who did receive him, who believed in his name, gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So, I mean, uh, to me this is a huge idea that um, that John focuses on, is the idea that that through faith in Jesus we become children of God, and that even... Even the Jews who would think that they're children of God are actually not because they don't have faith in Jesus. The Jews who are relying on their Jewish heritage or their, their covenant with Abraham to be called children of God, they're not the true children of God. The true children of God are the followers of Jesus. So I find that as a very significant idea for me personally, just thinking about my own family issues. There's this whole thing, I don't want to go too much into the weeds, but um, people talk about something called a God image, right? Uh, your God image. And your God image is basically something, uh, it's, for lack of a better way of explaining it, it's what you think of when you think of God, okay? And oftentimes our God image is informed a lot by our parents. So if you have had a very, like me, a very authoritarian parent, who, you know, was very perfectionistic and what you did felt like it wasn't, you know, there was a, there wasn't anything you could do that was good enough, that kind of thing. That was my own kind of background growing up. I wasn't, I think I've mentioned I wasn't raised by Christians or anything like that. Um, that that often impacts your picture of God. And so it really took me a long time of recognizing that and having to reframe and say, you know, uh, say, wow, you know, God isn't like my dad or my mom, for example. 
God isn't the he's he has authority, but he's not authoritarian. Um, and it's true that um, nothing that I ever do is sufficient to, for example, earn forgiveness of my sin or to make me God's child. Um, but that doesn't mean that my the things that I do are meaningless. And it doesn't mean that God is, is wanting me to necessarily, uh, or is expecting me to necessarily be perfect in the way that I'm daily walking with him. Um, that God knows that I'm going to sin and then God knows that I'm going to screw up or do things with improper motives and those kind of things. And that's not a surprise to him. And when I do, he's not standing there going, well, you screwed up again. But he's saying, you know, that's what grace is for. That's what forgiveness is for. Let's go ahead and try again. It's that kind of thing. So I think we get a little confused. I think I, 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 was, I, I had a confused idea about God for a long time that when I screwed up, sinned, whatever, that God was standing there with his arms crossed, you know, looking down on me and was very disappointed in me. And I realized, I'm like, where did that idea come from? And it was from my dad. My dad would do that, you know. And so just kind of a, something to think about is that we are children of God if we're followers of Jesus because we have faith in Jesus. Um, but uh, how is it that we're perceiving the father that we have in God? You know, I think that that's an important thing to think about is where is that God image coming from? Is it informed by scripture or is it informed by our own experiences? And experiences are fine. Um, there are some things that, that you can only learn or conceptualize via experience. But I would just say, let, in, in terms of the way we perceive God, it's I think it's a healthy starting place to start with um, what Scripture teaches versus kind of um, maybe um, a broken person, that kind of thing. So anyway, that was a little bit into the weeds, but I felt like it was um, an important thing to bring up. Now, finally, there is something very interesting that comes out of First John that probably will uh, ring a bell for you, and that is First John chapter four, um, uh, verse eight. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Hmm. Interesting. So you've probably heard this idea before, like you know, people, especially people, when they're talking about God and they're saying you know, don't judge me, God is love, God doesn't judge me, that kind of thing. It's a very, it's very interesting because I don't know, I would guess a majority of people wouldn't be able to isolate kind of where does that idea God is love come from. It's right here in First John. And I think uh, that this verse is kind of probably taken out of its original meaning often. And I think that the reason is because it's a very attractive idea, and but we don't realize that like we need to let this text itself and and the author of this text define what love is, right? So often when we talk about love, we say like something's not very loving. Usually, I think it means to people like I did I don't enjoy what you're doing, like or to you know, if you love me, you'll do things that I find enjoyable. So sometimes people might, if there's a confrontation or something like that, and I'm confronting someone, let's say even a, a, a friend who's a Christian, and I may be confronting them about something they said and saying, or something they did, and saying, I feel like, you know, that um, that wasn't good. 
that someone might go, well, that's not very loving. You know, you should focus on loving that person, not pointing out the things they did wrong. And I'd say, well, I think I am loving that person because I'm putting their actual needs before my own and even before their own desires of what they want to hear. And I'm even risking a friendship over it because I'm saying something that I think will be a benefit to them because I want to help them. Um, so we need to allow, in the context of this book, the author to define what love means. So if you look, for example, at uh, chapter 3, verse 16, we get a picture of what, um, what John thinks love is. He says, by this we know love, that he laid down so that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Um, further, if you go back to chapter 4, verse 9, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. So I think it's a very significant thing uh, that we need to grapple with, is that the kind of love that John is talking about is sacrificial love. It's not the kind of, it's it's this idea of someone giving up themselves for something, for someone else. Um, that's the kind of love he's talking about. And so the reason he's saying that God is love is because, number one, God sent his son Jesus to die um, and stood in our place and took the punishment, the, the wrath of God for our sins so that we might be righteous and pass through judgment one day, that we might be given life and resurrection. Um, but also that God, God himself, Jesus being God, um, sacrificed himself. And so that's what God is love means. It doesn't mean that God uh, wants me to get away, quote unquote, with every with anything or that God doesn't care what I do because God is love. God's not going to judge me. But the real reason is that um, the real reason John says this is he's trying to emphasize that if we say we know God, if we say we love God, uh, but we're not loving him or living this sacrificial lifestyle of being willing to lay down our lives for others, then what right do we say, do we have to say that we love God? Because God defines what love is. So just to give a, just one more example, I love my son, right? Um, but that doesn't mean that I let him do whatever he wants. If I let him do whatever he wants, he would sit around watching TV and eating candy all day. He wouldn't go to school. He would never clean his room. He would be rude and disrespectful to me and to my wife and um, would just be a general pain in the butt, right? Well, um, that's not loving to let him live like that because that's not going to help him in his life that's not going to help him um, be successful in school, be successful in a job. That's not going to help him find companionship if that's what he wants one day. It's not going to help him in any in any way if I let him do that. And so even though I don't like it because it makes me uncool to him and it makes him not want to be around me sometimes, I do, you know, punish him. I do discipline him and uh, hold him to a certain standard. I make sure that he always knows that I love him and that nothing will change that, but I, um, or that, you know, that I care for him. Um, but I uh, wouldn't, if it wouldn't be very loving if I just let him do whatever he wanted. That's the point. And so to say that God is love and to kind of use it as a license to do whatever you want, especially to sin, 
is actually the opposite of what John is trying to do. He's trying to say, God is love, so live this sacrificial lifestyle. Love God and love one another. One more thing I almost forgot about. <coughs> um, uh, this whole idea that I've been talking to you about the whole semester about the fact that there's no secret Christians, there's no private Christians in the New Testament sense, really, really is highlighted here in 1 John. You see there's all of these kind of things where he's saying, like, if we don't do this, you know, um, so, um, you know, if we, if we, uh, chapter 5, verse 2, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world and this is the victory uh, that has overcome the world, our faith. So he's saying that, how do we know who are the children of God? The ones that love God and the ones that obey his commandments. How do you know who's not the children of God? The ones that don't love God and that don't obey his commandments. So again, we can kind of try to have a fun discussion and extrapolate this into a theoretical space where we're trying to guess, you know, is someone really a Christian or not? Is it possible to, to stumble and sin for a time and then still be a Christian? Um, the New Testament doesn't really strongly address that. Generally, the answer is yes, you can stumble as a Christian, but the general lifestyle of your life is supposed to be one that is um, that is characterized by following Jesus, is characterized by looking like Jesus and being like Jesus and being his disciple. So that's really uh, that's really the focus on First John. So if you're feeling like, oh man, sometimes I don't love people, like occasionally I don't love people, that's not what John is talking about. Is someone who he's not talking about someone who sins once or you know has an unloving moment and goes back to that person and apologizes this would be someone who perpetually is unloving and perpetually even if they're confronted by a fellow christian refuses to make things right and refuses to change and uh, become more loving and so that's that's really i think clearly what john is talking about is this idea that if you're saying you're a christian um, then you'll act like a Christian, right? If you are actually a Christian, you'll act like a Christian. If you're not actually a Christian, you won't act like a Christian. You won't act like a follower of Jesus. And it's that simple. So, um, so the main things, you know, to know about this, Gnosticism, um, the idea of, uh, that we talked about with respect to love, right? What is love in John's, in John's eyes? some of the connections between 1 John and the Gospel of John, and this idea of the no private Christians thing. I think that's a huge thing as well. And this verse, I think, is just a very, very good expression of uh, the purpose of this book. All right, looking forward to talking to you about it in class.